rest of my message this morning to verses 22 through 29, but I do want to read this entire section. So follow along as I read this account. It says, Then a demon oppressed, some translations say demon possessed, man who was blind and mute. Boys and girls, mute just means he couldn't talk. He was not able to speak. Sometimes we have mute buttons on our remote controls and other things that keep sound away. This man couldn't see and he couldn't talk. Horrible condition. Can you imagine what it would be like? Bad enough to be blind, but not to be able to tell people what I really need is for you to lead me to my home or whatever. Couldn't talk either. Blind and mute. This man was brought to Jesus. And he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts. It doesn't say hearing their words. Apparently they spoke this sort of quietly among themselves. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, maybe you see why I suggested in my introduction that there were three thieves on those crosses. Because this passage teaches us from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself that He is in the process right now, began then, was explaining what was happening And He is continuing to do what He was doing then. He began to bind the devil. That's who the strong man is. He went into His house, the world. 
And having bound him, he is now plundering his goods. And many of us seated here today and in the overflow room are the fruit of that plunder. We have been plundered from the kingdom of darkness. And I suggest to you that Jesus is a glorious thief. He's a blessed robber. Now, let me just quickly show you what unfolds in these verses 22 through 29. It's very simply, this is how I believe it breaks down. See if you don't agree. What we have, first of all, is a wonderful miracle performed in verse 22. I've commented on it. This man's fundamental problem was that he was demon-oppressed or demon-possessed. Not all people who had physical maladies in the Gospels were demon-possessed. Not all people who were demon-possessed had physical maladies. Often, the demon possession was the cause. In this particular case, it clearly was. Because the healing resulted in the exercising, the casting out of the demons. And so this man who was formerly blind and couldn't speak at all, suddenly we're told in the same 22nd verse that he spoke and saw. Wonderful, amazing, astounding, stupendous miracle. And secondly, it caused a sense of amazement. And so we see in verse 23, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? These people apparently, those who were amazed and asked that question, had some knowledge of the Old Testament and knew that someday the Messiah was going to come and He was going to do miraculous things. This doesn't mean that they were prepared to believe upon Him as their Savior. Maybe all they were looking for was a political Messiah. We don't know. But one thing's for sure. They began wondering, could He be the fulfillment of all of these prophecies? Could this be the Son of David? And, of course, we know it was the son of David. I wish they had remained fixated on that question. I wish we could go on and read and many of them turned to him then and believed upon him as the Savior who was promised. We don't read that. But they were amazed. They were astounded. And as soon as the Pharisees saw their amazement, they were troubled. And so in verse 24, we find a wicked accusation made. Wonderful miracle performed, sense of amazement expressed, a wicked accusation made. What was their accusation? They said, basically, we can't deny the reality of this apparent miracle. But it's clear to us, Jesus did this by the power of the devil. You see, that was a disdainful, scornful, wicked, vile expression of willful unbelief. And immediately, the Lord Jesus in verses 25, 26, and 27 exposes the foolishness of their argument. And you see, he does it in two ways. See if you can count them. See if you can identify them. I'll just read those verses again. What are the two ways that Jesus unravels and exposes the, the foolishness, the fallacy of their argument? Here's what he says, verse 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? 
That's argument number one. Argument number two, to unravel their foolish accusation was simply this. Um, I have a question for you, Pharisees. If I cast out demons by the devil, Beelzebul, by the way, is just one of those names that came to be used to characterize the devil. Um, they said it was he did it by the prince of the demons, so that would be Satan himself. Uh, Beelzebul could, was one of the gods of the Philistines. Some say it, it literally meant Lord of the Flies. Some actually said it meant Lord of the Dung. One of the commentators said, oh, what a fall for Lucifer, son of the morning. Now he's called the Lord of the Dung. But at any rate, he sets forth this second argument. So let me just comment on him very briefly. The first one, isn't it clear? Jesus says, really, really, you think the devil is fighting against the devil? Is that what I'm understanding? Don't we all believe that a house divided against itself cannot stand? United we stand, divided we fall. Isn't that a common maxim? Everybody believes it. And you're telling me now that the devil is fighting against the devil? You really? You're so desperate to come up with some explanation that makes you comfortable that you're willing to embrace something so illogical as that? Ridiculous! Then how is His kingdom going to stand if He's divided against Himself? How foolish! But He says, I have another question for you. Uh, You have some acquaintances, some sons, who are casting out demons. Uh, By what power are they? Well, they, they're on the horns of a dilemma. Imagine you're the Pharisees. What are you going to say? You're going to say, well, they're doing it by the power of God. Oh, then why couldn't I be doing it by the power of God? Well, they're doing it by the power of the devil. Your sons are doing it by the power of the devil. Is that what you just said? Jesus would do this frequently in his infinite wisdom. He would put his accusers on the horns of a dilemma. And it was a lose-lose situation no matter how they answered it. They couldn't answer it. And then after he unravels their foolish argument, he gives the true explanation. So you see what's happening. Wonderful miracle performed, sense of amazement expressed, wicked accusation made, foolish argument exposed, and now we have the true explanation given. And here's where I want to focus our attention this morning for I trust edification and encouragement. Beginning with verse 28, Jesus says, Let me tell you what is really happening here. Let me explain. And so he says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and he's not really questioning whether or not that's the case. He's making a logical argument. The assumption is, his assertion is, really, I am doing this by not the devil, but by the Spirit of God. Of God. And if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, you need to understand something. You need to see the real logical conclusion. You need to grasp this because what it really means is that the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God. That's what this is about. This isn't about the devil. This isn't about Beelzebub. This is about God. 
This is about the kingdom that was prophesied. In essence, Jesus was saying, think about Isaiah 61. Think about the prophecies of the Old Testament. Think about what they said the Messiah was going to do as an evidence of his Messiahship. And if you see this unfolding before your very eyes, then you ought to have enough sense to know that the kingdom of God has come. And that implies, does it not, that the king himself has come. The king and his kingdom have arrived. What did John the Baptist say when he first began to preach? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did the Lord Jesus himself preach? We find it in Mark chapter 4, verse 15. He says, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is among you. And he said that on other occasions. They demanded of him, when is the kingdom going to come? He says, you don't have a right notion of the kingdom. It isn't something you can see with your physical eyes or touch with your hands. Behold, the kingdom of God is among you because the king was here. And so, Jesus is giving the true explanation. I have asserted my sovereign, omnipotent power over the sphere of Satan. He was ruling this man. He was possessing this man. He was causing his blindness and his muteness. And I, by my kingly authority, the king of the kingdom, simply healed him. And you ought to know, says Jesus, that that is evidence that the kingdom of God is among you. That's the true explanation. And then he gives us this beautiful analogy that I think warrants us to say, we have a robber for a Savior. We have a burglar for a Savior, a glorious one. He says it's like this. If there's a strong man whose house you want to rob, what are you going to do if he's home? Well, you're going to have to tie him down. You're going to have to get in the house and surprise him and overpower him. And you're going to have to put him in a chair and you're going to have to put ropes around him and you're going to have to bind him down really, really securely. And once you get him to where he can't move, then you're free and you will simply plunder his goods. And in essence, Jesus is saying, that's what's happening. I have begun to bind the devil. Now, this isn't the totality of the binding. And I just want to show you in a moment or so that it, was, it finds its consummation in his death and in his resurrection. But it has begun. When did he first assert his sovereign power over the devil? In the temptation. The devil couldn't out power our Savior. He was defeated. And I'm sure that Jesus was tempted many, many other times, perhaps thousands of other times. We, we sort of, in our minds, think, well, He was tempted at the beginning of His ministry and He was tempted at the end of His ministry there in the Garden of Gethsemane and maybe He wasn't tempted any other. He, his whole life was a temptation. The devil assaulted Him over and over and over. But he began to assert his sovereignty over the devil and his resistance of him in the wilderness when he was tempted. And he did so throughout the rest of his life. And when he did miracles of this sort, particularly where the devil himself is brought into it, the devil is brought into this miracle. He was demon-possessed. Who cast the demons out? 
Jesus. What does that say? It says He is sovereign over the devil. It says He's greater than the devil. It says He's more powerful than the devil. It says the kingdom of God had come among them. It says that He began to bind the devil, which means to restrict the devil. Now, you know the most famous passage of all in the Bible about binding the devil is Revelation chapter 20. In the interest of time, I'm not, I'm not even going to turn you there. However, we will be discussing this in due time in the Monday morning ladies' Bible study. little plug. It's, uh, it's going to be held on Mondays for a while. If that works out, it starts tomorrow. And I'm going to try, with fear and trembling, to teach the subject of eschatology. And I just hope like crazy that Pastor Sam doesn't show up. Because if he does, I'm going to be nervous. No, I've actually told him I want him to come at, at unique times and help us to understand. And at some point, we will surely look to Revelation 20. It's not a study of the book of Revelation. But we will look at Revelation 20 and we will see that in apocalyptic, symbolic, figurative language... Jesus is pictured as an angel who came down to earth and laid hold of that old dragon, the devil, and bound him for a thousand years so that, and this is so critical to understand, so that he could no longer deceive the Gentiles. During the old covenant days, God's mercies were almost exclusively confined to the nation of Israel and basically the Gentiles were blinded. The gospel didn't go worldwide. You didn't have the Great Commission going on in the Old Testament. But when Jesus comes and dies and opens His covenant mercies worldwide and global, He says, now the devil is no longer going to be allowed to blind the Gentiles. And so we go into all of the world, into all of the nations, and we make disciples of them. Because in that regard, in that regard, the devil is bound. Why would we conclude that this passage means the devil can't do any evil and that the devil is basically put out of business? We have no warrant to conclude that from Revelation 20. Revelation 20 tells us that he was bound so that he couldn't deceive the Gentiles. And then we have Psalm 1, not Psalm 1, we have Psalm 2 telling us that the Father says to the Son, I give you the nations for your inheritance now. And we have those illustrations in the New Testament of the disciples coming to Jesus and say, Jesus, the Greeks want to see you. And in essence, he says, their day is just around the corner. Tell them that when I be lifted up, when I am lifted up, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then he will draw all men to himself. Then the mercies of grace and redemption will open up to the Gentiles. That's what this is about. The devil is called in the Bible the God of this world. Yet, he's always under the sovereign power of the true and the living God who created the devil. He just didn't create him as the devil. So, what am I saying to you, dear people? What is this text saying to us? This text is saying to us that our precious Savior came into the world to, listen, quote, destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. He came into this world to assert His sovereignty over the devil. And in order to do so, 
He had to bind him. He had to restrict him. He had to overpower him. It began in his victory in the temptation. It continued through all of his miracles. And I say to you again, this is, this is the true meaning of the miracles. These miracles were... Yes, of course they were acts of kindness and love and mercy showing the heart of God for people who were miserable because of sin. Yes. But more than that, more than that, he was asserting his divinity. John tells us that he did many other things that are not reported in this book, but these are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so he explains to the Pharisees who are doing everything they could do to dismiss this miracle, you're in big trouble. You are in big trouble. Because the truth is, I'm asserting my sovereignty and I'm going to become a glorious burglar. And so, in that sense, dear ones, Jesus has bound the devil so that the gospel can go to Pakistan. So that the gospel can come in power to Davis County. So that you and I as individual sinners can be plundered. And we who trust in Christ have been plundered. So it's not just generally true with regard to the world. It is. But it's particularly true for each of us who have become Christians. It's because of the sovereignty of our Savior over the devil. Now, I just want to bring a few more um, observations. Uh, the first thing, I want to just go, well, now let me stick with this just a little bit further. Have you experienced this? With regard to you, has the devil been bound? With regard to you, are you one of Christ's spoils? Because you see, if you're not one of those people, I have to tell you, you're still in his house, to use this analogy. You're still in his house. You may somehow secretly hope, not for the right motives, that you will be plundered, but you're not presently plundered. And there are verses in the Scripture that teach that the devil does have power over unbelievers. Just only a few weeks ago I taught that the God of this world have blinded the minds of those who do not believe lest they see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The devil blinds the minds of people. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, don't argue with unbelievers. Be gentle. Be meek. Teach as best you can teach. And this is your hope. If God, perhaps, will give them repentance and they will be recovered, listen, from the snare of the devil who takes them captive at his will. That's the devil of the Bible. He's real. He has power. And as you listen to me this morning, every single one of us is either a captive of Christ or presently a captive of the devil. There is no in-between. There are only two kingdoms. Did you see them? They're in the text. 
The first kingdom is spoken of in verse 26. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom, who's his? Satan's. How will Satan's kingdom stand? There's the first kingdom. And then when you come to verse 28, it says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come. There's only two kingdoms. There are only two kings. There are only two people, two kinds of people. There is no neutrality. And that's part of what Jesus is talking about when he says just a little further um, in verse, well, let's see, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. They say, no, I'm not against Jesus. I'm neutral. Jesus says, no, you're not neutral. If you are not for me, you are against me. If you don't gather with me, you scatter. There is no neutrality. There are only two kingdoms. There are only two kings. And the devil is powerful. Did you know that when the Apostle Paul got his commission and he summarizes his commission, I think I'll just read this to you, but again, I'm going to save you the effort. Listen how he puts it. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. But prior to that explanation of his calling, he says this. This is the calling. I'm sending you, says God, to open their eyes, the eyes of the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan. From the power of Satan. Satan has power. And if you're not a believer this morning, he has power over you. Paul writes to the Colossians and he describes this glorious power of God, which is greater than the power of the devil. And he says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There are only these two domains, the domain of darkness, the domain of light, the domain of Satan, the domain of Christ. And Satan is powerful. And I beg of you who are unconverted to quit thinking of yourself as in a kind of neutral position. You want to say that. You want to say, well, you know what? I'm not really an enemy of God. <clears throat> I don't love him. I'm not a true disciple. I'm not really a believer, but I'm just kind of hovering around here in the middle. I'm not one of those people who hates him and all that. I'm just, I'm sort of near, but I'm not there. No! You are an enemy of God. You are a slave of the devil. You are in a kingdom of darkness. And the devil has you in his house. And your only hope, your only hope is that Christ might plunder you. And I'm just going to give you a little secret. If you want to be plundered by Christ, just say, Jesus, plunder me. Plunder me. Save me. Don't leave me in this kingdom. The strong man is bound. I used to think he was good, but he's a tyrant. He's a slave driver. He's destroying my life. I have no real peace. Jesus, you bound him. Set me free. Take me out of his house. That's how you get plundered. Don't sit around and wait for something to happen. So, 
That's the true explanation. Now I'm going to come to these just these final observations. And they, they sort of go back and look at the passage as a whole. I just want to remind you folks of the amazing, uh, really almost incredible, <laughs> inconceivable prejudice of an unbelieving mind. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about verse 23, uh, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this is only by Beelzebul. This is amazing. They saw a miracle take place before their very eyes. And they're so determined not to acknowledge Jesus for who he is that they come up with the most ludicrous argument that they can possibly conceive of. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of the prejudice of the unbelieving mind who has to work really, really hard to suppress the truth. Not long ago, Pastor Sam in his exposition of Romans showed us that powerful passage in Romans 1. Man by nature suppresses the truth in his unrighteousness. You have to hold it down. I remember Greg Bonson uh, illustrating it in one of his lectures as the kind of fun thing you do when you're in a pool and somebody's got a volleyball and they're trying to hide it and you're trying to figure out who's got it and somebody's sort of sitting on it, but it's so hard to keep it down because it pops out and it comes up again and you have to push it down and it pops up again. Or think of a soda pop and you're shaking it, the lid is off and you go all over the place. You have to hold it down because it wants to come up. And the truth that God has put in our minds and in our souls and in our consciences and in this world shouts to us. And we do everything we can do to suppress it. Hold it down. I don't want God in my life because if God is in my life, I can't do the things that I want to do. And of course, that's deception. I can't be happy if God is in my life. You can't be happy if God isn't in your life. So we have an amazing picture of prejudice and unbelief. Abandoning reason. The second thing I want to point out, I've already pointed out, the reality that there's only two kingdoms. And I just want to remind you that they're both present kingdoms. They're both realities. Someday there will no longer be a kingdom of darkness. At least there won't be any rulership in that kingdom. I want to remind you though it wasn't the point of the text, that there is a very fearful sin to be avoided. And it is the sin, the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is perhaps risky because to comment on it may raise more questions than it answers, but it's hard for me to believe that as I've read this passage, you didn't wonder about it. But let me just say this, and if you would like further explanation, we can help you with it. The unpardonable sin is a sin against the Holy Spirit. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying is that if a person knows in their heart beyond any shadow of doubt that something is a work of God and they attribute it to the devil out of malice and hatred and determination not to believe upon Christ, They are so sinning against the Holy Spirit that God may say, that's it. You have committed the unpardonable sin. There is 
a sin that is unpardonable. If words mean anything. Now, the danger in talking about this is that sensitive Christians fear that they've committed it. And some of us pastors have spent a lot of time on occasions helping people understand why it's evident that they haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Their very presence in our studies with tears streaming down their face and with fear in their hearts is an evidence that they haven't committed it because such souls are abandoned by God. They have no care about their souls. They hate God. They don't fear that they've committed the unpardonable sin. The very discussion is an evidence that they haven't. But I'm telling you that there is such a sin as being unpardonable. And it is a willful, malicious, hateful, attributing to the devil what you know is of God. And while no Christian can commit that sin, surely it does teach us that God The Father is very, very sensitive about how we respond to God, the Holy Spirit. And so, though we cannot commit the unpardonable sin, isn't it a terrible thing when the Holy Spirit is speaking to our consciences and even as believers we say, no, 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 not no, I don't want that. And we resist. Not the unpardonable sin. Don't anyone misunderstand me. A serious sin. I used to wonder, how could it be worse to sin against the Holy Spirit than the Son of God? You know, we say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and there's that subserviency in the Trinity. The Son does comes to do the will of the Father. And the Holy Spirit does the will of the Son and the Father. And He seems to be... The inferior one, of course, he isn't inferior. They're all equally God. But in the way they work out the plan and scheme of redemption, it seems like the Holy Spirit's down here. And now Jesus is saying, you can blaspheme the Son of Man, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it's over. That's right, because the Holy Spirit is the key person in helping us see who the Son is. And if we refuse the ministry of the Holy Spirit and attribute what we know to be the work of God to the devil, we do such a terrible sin against the one person that we critically need in order to see beauty in Christ. So, I'm going to leave it there. And I know I've raised questions. But you can't read this passage and go away from it and and not realize there is an unpardonable sin. And all of you who are unconverted would do well to live in fear and trembling of ever committing that sin. No Christian can commit it. And the last thing I want to say is that this is a beautiful picture of conversion here. And it's also, this passage is the hope of the church and it's the hope of those of you who have loved ones that are not yet saved. Could I just explain what I mean very briefly? Well, it's like this. Before you're a Christian, you're blind and you're mute. You can't see glory in the face of Christ because you're blind. And you can't open your lips and praise the God of glory because you're mute. 
This is the way Matthew Henry put it. It was so beautiful. He says, The soul under Satan's power and led captive by him is blind in the things of God and dumb at the throne of grace. Satan blinds the eye of faith and seals up the lips of prayer. When Satan's power is broken in the soul, conversion, the eyes are open to see God's glory and the lips open to speak his praise. In one sense, the conversion story of every single one of us who are truly saved is this. I was a demon-controlled, maybe not possessed as we think of demon possession in different parts of the world, but demon, it's certainly demon-oppressed. I just quoted for you 2 Timothy 2, whom the devil has taken captive by his will. If you're not a Christian, listen... You are under the power of the devil. And if you become a Christian, it's because God has come and said, let there be sight. Let there be speech. And we gather on days like today to see by the eyes of faith our beautiful Savior and to open our mouths and praise Him. We were once blind and mute. What a beautiful picture. And this is the hope. This is the hope of the church. This is the hope of parents. This is the hope of children who have parents that are unconverted. That this Savior of ours can do for our lost ones what He did for this demon Possessed man. Because he has bound the devil. Because the kingdom has come. Because he is sovereign over Satan. That's our hope. You know, I was thinking as late as this morning about the the hymn that we occasionally sing. And we're not going to sing this, but just remember this. This is the hope of the church. This is the hope for evangelism. I loved what Pastor Rich said today. And by the way, it's so good to see him getting around Again, and to have him here. And if what he prayed is, is true, he, he prayed, I mean, it's wonderful. He prayed that the Baldwin boys would all go to Pakistan and be great instruments. And one of our hymn writers wrote a hymn about the conversion of Saul. And the first phrase says, We sing the glorious conquest before Damascus' great gate when Saul the church's spoiler came breathing threats and hate. Listen to verse 2. O glory most excelling that smote across his path, O light that pierced and blinded the zealot in his wrath. Verse 3. O wisdom ordering all things in order, strong and sweet, what nobler spoil! Spoil! That's what this passage is about. What nobler spoil was ever cast at the victor's feet? He talks about what a great servant the Apostle Paul came. And then verse 4, the final verse is, Lord, teach thy church this lesson still in her darkest hour of weakness and of danger to trust your hidden power. Your grace by ways mysterious the wrath of man can bind and in thy boldest enemy thy chosen saint can find. That's the church's hope. This Christ of Matthew chapter 12. And may we all revel in it. 
And I want you to go home today, you who are Christians. Dads, if you lead your family in prayer today, will you just give thanks to God for those members of the family who have been spoiled from Satan's house, who have been plundered? And would you just pursue this sermon a little further so that the kids understand it? Did you understand what Pastor Ted tried to teach today? The devil controls unbelievers, but Christ is more powerful. And hold before them the prospect of being delivered from the power of the devil. And let's revel in this sovereign, because guess what? The kingdom has come, and the king is here, and he's our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Matthew 12. We thank you for this account. We thank you for the prospect that someday we're going to meet this man. Eternity will give us time to meet everyone, finite number of people, infinite period of time. Someday we'll talk to this man. Someday we'll ask him, what was it like before Christ healed you? And maybe we'll remember to tell him that we preached about this and thought about it. Oh, Lord, now we pray, be gracious to the unconverted here. Help them to see that they're still in Satan's house. And help them to long to become plundered by your grace. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope of the church. It's in you. You're sovereign. We thank you that the devil can do nothing but what he's allowed to do. We thank you that a day is coming when he will be hurled headlong into hell and that at the, and on the bottom of his feet in a sense, will be written to the glory of God. You are sovereign over Him. We thank You. And we pray that You continue to assert that sovereignty over His influences on our lives, even now as Christians. Help us to resist Him until He flees from us. So bless us, Lord. We thank You for who You are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing together the great hymn of Martin Luther, but I would ask you.